Give Me Liberty is brought to you by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. America faces a crisis. Too many Americans don't know why they should love their own country. Ashbrook's mission is to change that. Since President Reagan inaugurated the Ashbrook Center in 1983, its mission has been to strengthen constitutional self-government, educating students, teachers, and citizens in America's history and founding principles. Ashbrook just released an essential resource for rediscovering the principles and history of our country called The American Idea. The volume presents the American story through a few key primary documents and invites the reader into a rich conversation across time about the central idea that defines America. The American Idea is available as a free digital download and for purchase. Visit ashbrook.org slash American Idea to get your copy today. That's ashbrook.org slash American Idea to get your copy today. My name is Richard Brookheiser, and welcome to Give Me Liberty, the making of American exceptionalism, the podcast about liberty, America's exceptional idea. Before we were even a country, Americans were thinking about liberty, working for it, fighting for it. We've been doing it for 400 years. This is episode number two, Religious Liberty in America Begins in Queens. With me today is Luke Thompson, political consultant and history buff. If there's something in electoral history he doesn't know, it probably isn't worth knowing. Luke, over to you. Uh, well, Rick, great to be back with you uh, discussing religious liberty, which it pains me to acknowledge something great came from Queens, but here we are. Um, I, the Flushing Remonstrance is probably not a top-of-mind document for most Americans. It's the one when I'm talking about the chapters in this book that most people have never heard of. Right, exactly. I mean if you're, if you're a nerd like me, you've heard of it. You have a general sense of it out, its outlines. Um, but it, it doesn't fit neatly into the sort of elementary middle school narrative of American history. Part of it's because it involves Dutchmen and Quakers. Part of it is that it's, it's – Outcomes are so sort of ambiguous in the moment um, and because it's a document suffused with religious ideas that to 21st century Americans can seem uh, peculiar um, – Antique. Antique. Yeah, exactly and, and that there are very, very small uh, differences being litigated here as if they were monumental and yet in many ways, I think that that's because the remonstrance sets a trajectory that's so successful in terms of the way we understand religion and religious liberty that its own foundations and the emergence and the world from which it emerged is almost inscrutable to us. Uh, de Tocqueville says that every great revolution annihilates the, uh, the preconditions of its own success from the eye of a historian looking backwards. And in some ways, the Flushing Remonstrance does that. It, it, it makes the world from which it came almost impossible for us to understand. So. Uh, given the relative obscurity of the document compared to things like the Declaration of Independence or the James uh, or Jamestown or whatnot, um, what was the world that produced the Flushing Remonstrance? Well, it's a Dutch colony, and that that's probably the main reason for its obscurity, uh, because not only did England win the war against Holland and 
take their colony over, uh, they won the history of it. You know, we all know about Jamestown. We all know about the Pilgrims. But what happened in between in what's now New York, then New Amsterdam, is a lot hazier in our memory. Uh, Holland was a potent, wealthy, ambitious country in the early 17th century. They had colonies around the world. They had New Amsterdam. They owned Brazil for a while. They had islands in the Caribbean, which they still own. Uh, they were in India. They were in what's now Indonesia. And the colony that they had uh, here in uh, New Amsterdam, like many of their colonies, was for resources extraction. They were interested in furs, beaver pelts, and getting them from the Indians and then shipping them back to Holland and making you know, ruffs and capes and all the stuff you see in Rembrandt's and all the great, all the great Dutch paintings. So uh, it, New Netherland uh, and New Amsterdam, the capital city, was a commercial enterprise. And in 1647, the company, the Dutch company that owned it, sent out a new governor general. Uh, they wanted someone efficient and effective. Uh, the last guy had started a war with the local Indians, which was just a disaster. You know, they, they really had some cleaning up to do. So the man they picked was Peter Stuyvesant. And he was probably the best mayor of New York until uh, Fiorello LaGuardia. Uh, he, <laughs> he, he was very efficient. He was effective. He laid out new streets. He paved them. He built a hospital. Uh, he established a market for farmers from Long Island to come in once a week. Uh, he was a take-charge leader. But the downside of that was that he was a tyrant and he was a bigot. Uh, he, his word was going to be law and his religious beliefs were going to be the beliefs of this colony. His father was a Calvinist minister of the Dutch Reformed Church and that's what Peter also believed in and by God, his uh, subjects here in New Amsterdam were going to have to believe that too. Now, the problems that arose were often solved by his employers back in Holland. He went after Jews. He went after Lutherans. Well, there were investors and directors in the company that employed him who were Jews and Lutherans. So when word of this got back to Amsterdam, they would send word back across the ocean to Stuyvesant telling him, cut this out. And he's a good company man, so he would cut it out. But then, a religious group appears which has no directors or investors back in Holland to stick up for them. These are Quakers. Uh, this is a group that flourishes in the ferment of the English Civil War. The lid comes off English society. Uh, there is a, a, an outgrowth of churches and sects, uh, some of them you know, would strike us as quite mainstream today, others simply lunatic. Uh, you know, a man claiming that he is Adam of the Bible, this, this kind of thing. Uh, Quakers are kind of in a middle position. Uh, they don't claim to be Adam from the Bible, but they do believe that they have an inner light. 
that any Quaker can preach as well as any other. This includes women. Uh, they believe that all, all believers are, are equal, so they don't recognize rank. They won't doff their hats to their superiors. Uh, they won't um, change their forms of address. They address everybody the same way. This makes them extremely unpopular. So Quakers start showing up, among other places, in New Amsterdam. Uh, the first shipload of them that appears, uh, Stuyvesant uh, meets, meets the man who uh, is, is leading the ship. Uh, the guy won't take his hat off. The comment of the Dutch minister who's there at the meeting, meeting is that he stood like a goat with, with his hat on his head. So Stuyvesant tells him, well, uh, why don't you keep sailing? Uh, just go down Long Island Sound to Rhode Island. Uh, you may have some friendlier people there. So he gets rid of him. Uh, but this Quaker left behind two women who began preaching in the streets, two English women Quakers, that the end was nigh. Uh, people had to recognize the, uh, the truth of what they were saying. Uh, so he had them arrested and then he had them expelled. Then uh, yet another Quaker appears, a young man this time. He starts preaching in western Long Island, uh, what's now Queens and Brooklyn, parts of New York City, but then independent villages, parts of Stuyvesant's domain. And uh, Stuyvesant arrests this guy and practically beats him to death. I mean he just whips him in public. He whips him in private. And it's so brutal that he gets an anonymous letter from one of his subjects saying, you know, look, let this guy go. You've got him on a work gang and what work is he going to be able to do? You're killing him. So Stuyvesant finally lets, lets this poor Quaker off the hook. And then he decides, all right, enough. No more Quakers are going to come here at all. If any ship bearing them comes in, it's going to be fined. Anyone who uh, welcomes them into his house, that is an offense. They will be criminally prosecuted by me. And then this is the setup for the Flushing Remonstrance. Now, why is Stuyvesant so bothered by the Quakers? Is it because he just views them as socially obnoxious because they, they sort of miss they're – not, they're not good at parties? Um, or is it because they have some sort of view about disestablishmentarianism in terms of the Dutch Reformed Church uh, that, that runs against his vision of a, of a unified um, you know, uh, religious and, and worldly power? Uh, or is it that he sees them as sort of English intrius who are threatening Dutch control or some other reason? Well, all of the above except the last. Uh, it was a Dutch colony but they were welcoming English settlers. Uh, partly, very pragmatically, they wanted buffer settlements on Long Island mm. to protect them from pirates and Indian attacks. So they figured, <laughs> oh, we'll let the Englishmen, you know, get it in the neck first and, you know, they'll take the first blows. But you know, he, he doesn't like their beliefs. He thinks they're wrong. They, they do not accept Calvin's interpretation of things. So therefore, they're bound for hellfire. He Whereas the Puritans in Massachusetts Bay are good Presbyterian Calvinists yeah, down the line. And, yeah, they're Congregationalists, some of them, but yeah. They're fine. They're fine. Yeah. Uh, they, they behave uh, terribly. They didn't take off their hats to me. And, and um, you know, what would be the equivalent uh, in recent times? I mean, almost like you know, hippies or something when they, when they first emerged. You know, who, who are these crazy people? 
and he just does not want them there. And also he knows, or he must sense, they don't have any allies back in Holland. You know, I'm not going to get yanked on my chain for this. So now he, he, he issues his, his decree, no more Quakers can come in. And then a very interesting thing happens. There are 30-some uh, men in the town of Flushing, uh, it has a Dutch name, Vlissingen, but Flushing is the anglicized form of it. And they send Peter Stuyvesant a remonstrance. And they say that we cannot obey this latest order of, you, of yours. Uh, we cannot condemn them because do unto all men as you would be done by. This is the law and the prophets. They're saying our religion teaches us that we cannot refuse to be hospitable to these people. And we're not going to obey your, your order. We can't. How can we? Now, they make some other arguments. I mean, it's a clever document. They, they do say there is an outward law, which is the law of Holland. Mm -hmm. And Holland is a, is a tolerant country, a relatively very tolerant country by contemporary standards. Uh, you can be of any faith there so long as you worship in private. That's the, the outward law of Holland, which they cite. They allow Nicodemites. They, yeah, right. Yeah. Jews, Turks, as Muslims were called, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. They also say we have a charter for the town of Lissingen or Flushing, uh, which uh, allows us to uh, have certain leeway over our own affairs. So they've got two legalistic arguments. But their main one, and what, what strikes me as the the engine moving this remonstrance is this religious conviction that Stuyvesant is ordering them to do something that is against the will of God. And, and that's, what they, that's what they hit him with and that's what they keep recurring to in this document, which is uh, rather hard for us to read. It's 17th century language. Uh, the sentence structure is very involved. There are lots of biblical quotations and allusions. Uh, it is, it's harder than Shakespeare. You know, it, it's a harder read than, uh, than Shakespeare. Uh, and the, uh, the other thing that, that moves me so deeply about this is that they all sign their names at the end. But there are about four or five of them who can't write their names, or don't write their names. They write marks. Hmm. These guys wrote marks, but they were laying down a marker. They were, they were putting themselves on the line, even though it could just be some weird little scrawl to represent his name. And they're not themselves Quakers. No, they, they don't seem to be Quakers. Uh, but, they, but they have this attitude. They say, you know, we will recognize uh, uh, Quakers. We will recognize Presbyterians. We will recognize Baptists. Uh, they compare uh, these people to Christ's little ones and, and they say that, uh, you know, it, it's, it's the will of God that, that we care for Christ's little ones. Uh, it would be a terrible thing to define the will of God for out of God Christ is a consuming fire. I mean, they're, they're really telling Stuyvesant, you know, we have to tell you this. Uh, it, would, it would be very bad for us to agree with what you're saying. I mean, we would be risking divine punishment ourselves 
if we excluded these people. So we can't, you know, we can't go along. And that goes to a way that religious liberty in America is traditionally interpreted. Um, it's sort of the, the Hector St. John de Crevacois version of it where there are just so many – who's writing before the revolution even but there are just so many sects everywhere that the idea of having an established church or some sort of ecclesiastical polity aligned with the actual – with the polity, the sovereign polity uh, which was just impracticable. But is that the case here? It doesn't feel like it is. It feels like you could in fact have an autocratic uh, established church in New Amsterdam if one wanted one. Well, you had one. <laughs> I mean Stuyvesant, he was doing his best you know, and he was, he was a very effective guy. No, th that's the sociological explanation for why we have religious liberty. You know, we've had so many religions here that uh, they have to get along. Otherwise, they'd be at each other's throats all the time. Therefore, we decided to live and let live. Uh, then there's also the philosopher's explanation, uh, which would look to, you know, John Locke, people like that, their influence on people like Jefferson, and certainly that's important. And that's important for, for people of a philosophical cast of mind. But this is, this is a religious reason for religious liberty. You know, you, you, Peter Stuyvesant, you are our governor in the world, but we have a more important governor who tells us that we can't do what you want us to do. That is the, the engine at the heart of this of, of this statement. And, and does it work? What happens? Well, that's the, that's the sad thing here. What Stuyvesant does immediately, and we know it very well because he kept very meticulous records. And you can go online and, and read these. He cracks down. He arrests people right and left. He interrogates them. There, there are these minutes of his interrogation of a man, Edward Hart, who was the, the actual draftsman of, of the remonstrance. And he just, he just goes after this guy and he says, uh, uh, who, you know, who told you to write this? Well, no one told me to write it. Well, how did you come to write it? Well, I was taking the sense of, uh, of the people. Where, where did you do this? Was there a meeting? Well, no, there wasn't a meeting. Was it a, you know? And it's really like point after point after point. And this guy is trying to trying to duck it. He's trying to be evasive. Uh, it's really a window into authoritarian life. I mean, look, someone in North Korea today would 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 willingly be trans transplanted to New Amsterdam. But but this is a real this is a really tough crackdown. That Stuyvesant does, and he arrests people, he throws them in jail, and he breaks them. You know, they 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 finally ask uh, to be forgiven. Uh, one argument is, uh, oh well, you know, we weren't really criticizing you; we were just trying to determine what your thinking was. Uh, so he then he becomes lenient, then he 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 pardons these people, and he thinks. I've stifled this. I'm off the hook. But of course he's not because Quakers keep appearing. Another one named John Bone, also from uh, Flushing, now Queens, is hauled before Stuyvesant. Again, he refuses to take his hat off. It is taken off for him. 
And this time, Stuyvesant decides, well, what I should do with this guy, he keeps him for five months. I think he's hoping to make him crack. Mm. And he doesn't. So the final thing Stuyvesant does is he sends him back home. He sends him to Amsterdam. He's like throwing him into the lap of his employers. All right, you people decide what you want to do with this guy. And then their decision uh, is one cast in terms of pragmatism and they write Stuyvesant back and say, look, we don't like Quakers any more than you do. But we do want people in our colony. We do want settlers. So just leave these, leave these people alone, OK? Just back off. And Stuyvesant finally, the good company man, obeys what he's told. And what, what sort of man is Stuyvesant compared to, to, say, Yardley, for instance? On the one hand, you've said he's a visionary with a lot of, of very, I mean, little p progressive ideas about how to organize the city. Also, he's clearly quite narrow-minded, at least on matters of religion. He seems to be in some ways both a, a, an extremely efficient person and also a bit of a voluptuary. He's missing a leg. What, what sort of person is this? Because there are these colonial governors who are neither fully villains nor fully heroes in the way that we – from the period before the revolution. And I think it's it's interesting to think about them in their ambivalence from the standpoint of American liberty, both as essential vehicles for getting us to the point of where we can have a successful revolution, but also as uh, byproducts of a colonial era passing away with American independence. Right. Well, you mentioned uh, he's missing a leg and he's a voluptuary. He's missing a leg because it was torn off by a Spanish cannonball when he was um, – attempting to capture one of Spain's Caribbean islands earlier in his career. Uh, he's a voluptuary because he was uh, based – before they sent him to New Amsterdam, he was in Curaçao and he made sure all the time he was in New Amsterdam that he got parrots and parakeets sent to him from Curaçao because he liked them. So there's, <laughs> there's, there's something – this romantic streak there. Uh, he, you know, he is an autocrat. He, it's just – it's my way. You know, my way or the highway. It, it, he really is like that. But you know, the flip side of that is he obeys orders from his bosses. So when his bosses tell him, you know, lay off the Jews, lay off the Lutherans, and then finally even lay off the Quakers, he does it. He obeys. And then the final act uh, in 1664. You know, only a few years af after the uh, after the remonstrance and this whole episode with John Bone. The English show up and they show up with overwhelming force and they are – they send to Stuyvesant a message, surrender or we will bombard and take your city. And Stuyvesant wants to fight. That's his initial reaction and he's there at the – what's now the battery, uh, southern tip of Manhattan with a cannon. You know, he's willing to, uh, to, to, to put the fire to the touch hole and – you know, bring bring the conflict on, but uh, uh, the citizens, his subjects, they beg him. You know, don't don't do this because we'll be destroyed. And he relents. And then the interesting thing about it, he goes back to Holland to to sort of report on his his final failure and be reprimanded. But then he comes back to New York, which has now changed his name to New York, and this is where he lives and where he dies. And he's buried down in what's now the East Village. So there was something about this colony here that drew him back, which is kind of, kind of poignant. Yeah, I think so. And it's also 
part of what is a very New York story, right? There's there's an element of pragmatism in the face of of high-flying commerce and lots and lots of irreconcilable diversity and in some ways just trying to keep things held together with chewing gum and bailing wire. Um, but uh, also ultimately what emerges from this is – or what strikes me about this is that while the, the remonstrance itself fails in the sense that Stuyvesant breaks its authors using the sort of – using authoritarian methods. Um, his pragmatism doesn't survive its principle and he winds up preferring to live under its principle rather than under his, the, the pragmatic regime that had benefited and proffered and, and under which he would profited immensely um, as a matter of personal wealth and also career. Um, and I wonder what that says about uh, the idea of, of the national character of liberty, whether we're, we're just mugged by it, whether we want to be or not. Well, certainly he was, and it certainly speaks to liberty's power. I mean, if you give it, if you give it its head, it will send down roots. You know, and that I think is is the final effect of of the Flushing Remonstrance for for the rest of American history. Even though you know the Dutch disappear and their 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 rule vanishes, but uh, New York is marked by this experience, and it has always retained this diversity of sex, diversity of faiths and why is this important for the rest of the country? Well, only because New York ends up being the largest city in it. Uh, New York for many decades is the largest state. Uh, in a way, New York has the big megaphone. So – and it's not even that New York is proclaiming this but it's just like living it and doing it and enacting it and it gets thrown out, you know, to, uh, uh, to the rest, to the rest of America, and uh, so that I think is the the importance of this in the larger American story. Give Me Liberty is brought to you by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. America faces a crisis. Too many Americans don't know why they should love their own country. Ashbrook's mission is to change that. Since President Reagan inaugurated the Ashbrook Center in 1983, its mission has been to strengthen constitutional self-government, educating students, teachers, and citizens in America's history and founding principles. Ashbrook just released an essential resource for rediscovering the principles and history of our country called the American Idea. The volume presents the American story through a few key primary documents and invites the reader into a rich conversation across time about the central idea that defines America. The American idea is available as a free digital download and for purchase. Visit ashbrook.org slash American idea to get your copy today. That's ashbrook.org slash American idea to get your copy today.